I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on our quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small. A podcast in search of all that moves us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Tenery Taylor. Burkhart Bilger grew up in Oklahoma, the son of German immigrants and the grandson of a Nazi party chief. I think in this country, we've always had a very, very black and white idea about the war and what it meant to be German. You're like either a, you were a Nazi or you were a Schindler, and there was no in-between. Otherwise, you're in some way complicit, which in many cases is true. I mean, like people like my grandfather, they went along with this regime which did horrific things. Burkhart Bilger's family didn't speak much about his grandfather's past. It was a topic on which his normally articulate and straight-talking mother, Edeltraut Bilger, would become somewhat aloof. For his own part, as a young boy visiting relatives in Germany, Burkhart was nervous around his grandfather, a stern and serious man named Carl Gunner, who was missing one eye. But years after Carl's death in 1979, Burkhardt's family learned that this complicated man had actually undermined his own Nazi party repeatedly and at great risk to his own life on behalf of villagers in occupied France. And this guy was a Nazi, but he saved my son, but he got me out of prison, but, you know. Burkhart Bilger has been a staff writer at The New Yorker for over 20 years. He has a new book out titled Fatherland, A Memoir of War, Conscience, and Family Secrets. We bring you today his family's story, how they discovered that their own history was far more inspiring than they'd ever imagined. You see, Carl Gunner wasn't just a complex person, he was a complex Nazi. His family had reason to fear the worst about him, but their research into his Nazi past completely altered the way they thought about him. Here's his grandson, Burkhart Bilger, again. There's a whole story there that this man could have been, on the one hand, kind of blind and complicit, and on the other hand, courageous and principled. Would I have had the courage to do what he did during the war? The central character of the story, Carl Gunner, was born in 1899 and raised in the Black Forest of southwestern Germany. His life was shaped by both world wars. These wars upended the way he had thought about the world in his youth. So he was 19 years old. He had been studying to be a priest and uh, suddenly got this call to the army. It was at the end of the war, 1918, and he shows up in the Western Front and in September of that year, it's the Battle of Meuse-Argonne, and he's in the Argonne Forest, and the Algerian light infantry is attacking the German position. You know, the French had all these colonial soldiers, and he's in a trench with his best friend when in the middle of this, this massive attack, I mean, the Germans are outnumbered, it's the end of the war, it's kind of the last great battle of the war, Um, At night, a mine, a landmine goes off next to him in the trench and a piece of shrapnel goes into his eye, but the more deadly one goes into his best friend. And what's happened is his best friend has been panicking in the trenches next to him. He's a younger soldier and my grandfather ends up taking him in his arms to comfort him and, and keep him from running into the fight. And that's when the landmine goes off and the piece of shrapnel hits my grandfather's best friend in the back and kills him instantly. And of course, if he hadn't been holding him in his arms, that piece of shrapnel would have hit my grandfather and killed him instead. So it was a devastating event for him, both for himself physically and for him psychologically to lose his friend that way. You wrote, he returned from the war with a sense that never left him that the world was a shattered thing in need of radical repair. How did that belief inform his life after the war? Well, you know, I think he had always been a man of strong belief, a man who needed structures and needed rules to live by and beliefs to live by. He'd grown up in this very poor Black Forest village and and the priesthood 
was something that to a lot, a lot of people, it wouldn't have been very appealing. It was a very grim sort of religion. But to him, I think it offered something beyond this kind of sharecropper existence that he had. And he had put his whole faith and his whole mind into it. And was in seminary, really thought that was his life. And so war, to see this senseless slaughter, I mean, to really arrive in 1918, I think there was no hope left in that battle for Germans, for anybody. They'd just seen millions of people die on both sides. And all the idea that he might have had that God is with us, that there's a purpose to this slaughter, I think really just left him in that moment. And what he came out of it with was not wanting to be a priest anymore, but wanting to be a teacher, the sense that what needs to be done here is not pray, but to inform people how to build a more equitable politic, how to build a more equitable society. The terrible irony of that is that led him to Nazism eventually, and a certain kind of blinkered blindness that had its own terrible outcome. But I think at the time, he had just seen this, what seemed to him a shattered world, a shattered economy, and he wanted to find some way to stitch it back together. Here's a story from my family. In the 1940s, my grandfather was doing in-flight training in a B-17 bomber. He hears a voice when there's no one around telling him three times to put on his parachute. Moments after he puts it on, his plane collides with another plane and crashes. His life was spared, but six soldiers died. I thought of that story when I read about your grandfather, Carl Gunner, coming back from the Western Front, you know, at the end of World War One. Yeah, this is a story um was told to me by my mother and by a couple of villagers in, in the Black Forest. This was a tale that was passed around the village afterwards. He was on the transport back to Germany, kind of wounded and broken, as I said, from the battle. He was sitting in the car with other soldiers, and suddenly he sees an old comrade of his stand up in the aisle and gesture for him to come out. And he looks up at him and says, wait a second, how can you be here? You died in the battle several months ago. What's what's going on? And the guy insistently waves for him to come down the aisle. So he gets up completely dumbstruck and follows this vision out of the car And as soon as he leaves the door into the next compartment, this enormous explosion goes off behind him and throws him into the aisle of the next car. And it turns out that other, that car behind him has been hit by mortar fire and everybody in that car died. So it's interesting to me, here's a man who supposedly had lost his faith and yet this happened to him. Did it restore his faith? Not then. He eventually came back to the church. You know, another, I think, 10 years later, he finally returned to the church. But I think there had always been this kind of second sight in his family. His mother had seen the dead. She was a midwife in this village in the Black Forest and was famous for having kind of visions of the dead on the side of the road and babies she had lost and people she had lost, seeing them again. So I think there was this this sense of belief and mysticism in the family. But after the war, he just couldn't take part in, in the organized religious part of it, I think, again. He, he was just too too disillusioned. Before we leave that story, will you share his mother's vision of his brother, who had a very different fate in the war? Yeah, that was the other great story that came out of that. His brother was in Flanders in an even more vicious battle in some ways. And she was back home in the Black Forest toward the end of the war, laying in bed one night. And suddenly she wakes up and she hears footsteps outside on the sidewalk outside her their little farmhouse. And she shakes her husband awake and says, oh, Yosef has come back from the war. And then she listens a little again and then she realizes those aren't really... It can't be Yosef. Uh, it must just be his ghost coming. And she says to my great-grandfather, she says, oh, now, now I know that Yosef has died. And then a week later, they get notice from the front that he actually had died that night in Belgium. So again, these were the kind of stories that structured my childhood that my mom often told them, and both of them had those kind of experiences. Carl Gunner grew up in a small, unusually devout village, and it was common for people there to believe in spirits. 
We'll hear more later about the spiritual, metaphysical experience that Burkhart Bilger's mother, Adel Trout, had, even after she'd moved to America. But let's go back to the life of Adel Trout's father, Carl Gunner, after the First World War. After he'd lost his conviction in a just God and abandoned the plans he had made in adolescence to become a Catholic priest. Instead, Carl Gunner became a schoolteacher after all and he ended up joining the Nazi party in his mid-30s. There were actually many aspects of the Nazi party that a man of his temperament and background might have found appealing. He joined in 1933, and he came in through the the Winter Hilleswerk, the winter charity drives, and that was a program that existed before the Nazis, but Hitler kind of co-opted it. And my grandfather, the strongest strain in him was a desire to make German society more equitable. Now, to us knowing what the Nazis did, that sounds absurd. And I do think there was always this element of blinkeredness where equitable for white Germans, you know, who are not Jewish, who are not gypsies, who are not all kinds of other things the Nazis didn't like. I mean, the great majority of the population, but, but still, that was the group he was focused on. And he had grown up in the Black Forest, like I said, sharecroppers, people who could barely make a living. The Black Forest at this time, according to Burkhart Bilger, was practically medieval, the bulk of the land being owned by the Prince of Furstenberg. Farmers didn't generally own their farms, and Carl Gunner's father leased the land he worked. But he was also a gambler. And one night, when Carl was just a baby, his father gambled away his house and garden— all he really held claim to in this world. Distraught, he went home and drank disinfectant, killing himself. The tragedy was not lost on his son Carl as he grew to manhood. And so he was, you know, keenly aware of poverty and the crushing effect it could have on people. And so for him, these promises the Hitler and the Nazis made that Everybody should be able to own a house, that everybody should be able to own a car, that we're going to make this society work for everyone, not just for the elite, that in fact the elite were not not so welcome, not so privileged under the Nazis. Those held an enormous appeal to him, and he was kind of willing to blind himself to the terrible things, I think, in order to make that happen. Was it an active blinding, or was there a point as the war progressed, where his confidence waned? Maybe give us some examples. Absolutely. I mean, he was active in the sense that, yeah, he led the Hitler youth in his village. And he went to the two Nuremberg rallies where Hitler laid out his anti-Semitic uh, program pretty clearly, very clearly. Germans at the time, there was a phrase, nothing's eaten as hot as it's cooked. This idea that the guy's a blowhard, he makes big statements, but he doesn't really mean it. You know, and we see that in our own politics all the time that we make those kind of excuses. But he believed in the principles of national socialism. He was a didactic, he was a school teacher, and he believed in teaching those principles. You know, he pretty quickly became disillusioned with it at some level. And he got at cross purposes with the local party leadership when they persecuted one of his fellow teachers and, and had him transferred to another town because he hadn't been a sufficiently vociferous party member. And so my grandfather wrote a, a letter, which I have, where he, he basically says that the party in, in this area has become taken over by madmen, megalomaniacs, you know, which honestly was kind of a, a dangerous thing to say in this village. And, and it kind of was true for him in general. He was always kind of willing to make those kind of statements. He was both a, a rule follower and a believer. And he was also a very principled guy that if he saw something going wrong, he was not afraid to say it. Those two things went together in him. Were there any repercussions for him defending his colleague? Yeah, eventually he was transferred out as well. Carl Gunner was reassigned from Alfingen on the east side of the Black Forest to Weil am Rhein on the southwest corner of the Black Forest, with the occupied French region of Alsace just across the Rhine River to the west. Burkhardt's mother, Edeltraut, spent much of her childhood in that town. 
During World War II, Carl would commute by bicycle over the Rhine into occupied France, where he'd been assigned by the Nazi party to teach elementary school. We're going to continue the story of Carl's work as a school teacher and official in the Nazi party, but to understand the tense atmosphere in Alsace where he was sent to teach, it's important to know that this is an area that even for Europe has changed hands an extraordinary number of times. And the yo-yoing back and forth both exhausted and enraged the people who lived there. Alsace is fascinating to me. It's a place that has just been forever disputed. It's in the center of Europe, um, and it's always been claimed by both Germany and France. And this goes back, way back. It goes back to the Emperor Charlemagne. I mean, Charlemagne was the first great emperor of Europe. He owned that whole area. After he's dead, it gets divided up into three parts. And the western part becomes France, the eastern part becomes Germany, and the middle part, which is the richest and the most fertile and includes everything going down to Vatican City and Italy is where Alsace lies. And so for the rest of the next thousand years, basically, France and Germany fight over this strip of land. For 800 years, it's in German hands. Then Louis XIV claims it for France. Then in 1871, the Prussians take it over for Germany. In 1918, when the French are victorious in World War I, they reclaim it for France. You know, what's happening is every time somebody takes over, they're more insistent that they are the true owners, that their culture is the better culture. And the French come in, they issue identity cards based on how much French ancestry you have, how much German ancestry you have. They kick out thousands of Germanizations. 95% of the people in Alsace speak German. They force them all to learn French and speak French in the schools. And then finally, the Nazis come in in 1940, and of course, they're the worst of all. And they go to absurd extremes. They say, not only do you have to learn German again, but now you have to change your name to a German name. We have to change the street signs. We have to change gravestone inscriptions. We have to get rid of statuary that shows Voltaire or, or Moliere, and we have to replace them with Goethe and German heroes of culture even to the point where they made it illegal to wear berets in Alsace. They were called Gehirnverdunklungskappe, you know, brain-darkening cap. So you would get stiff fines and even jail time if you were berets in the street. So this area becomes this kind of incubator of the worst kind of nationalism. And it really is about this culture war of each side thinking they need to prove that they're the better culture, that they're the better people, that, um, that there's a way to do things. So Carl Gunner started his teaching career in Germany, but during World War II found himself assigned to teach in this contested, occupied area of Alsace, France. Everywhere he taught, though, his students saw him as a stern man, much as his young grandson Burkhard would when he traveled from Oklahoma to visit him in Germany many years later. Those students would offer some insight into how Carl Gunner found the courage to speak out and act out against Nazi extremism. Burkhart Bilger is the author of Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. I'm Tenery Taylor, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. I interviewed a number of his former students, and they all kind of said the same thing. They said he was very strict. He would lead class with his violin songs, and if somebody sang off-key, he would hit them with the bow and say, you're singing false! But they all said he was a very good teacher, which honestly, in, especially under the German occupation, was not at all a given. I mean, Hitler's whole idea about education was that it's kind of a waste of time that really what we need to do is educate soldiers and workers. And so the Nazi curriculum in Alsace and a lot of Germany was terrible. If you were going to learn chemistry, it was all about the chemicals in bombs or poisonous gases. If you were going to learn math, it was all about the trajectories of missiles. If it was biology, it would be the genetics of races and, you know, kind of anti-Semitic things in that. And my grandfather... His students told me that he didn't do that. He would do some of what was required of him. You know, when you walked into class, they would have to stand up and say, Heil Hitler, and raise their hands. He would do what was also required, which was to have a big map of Europe in front of the class and show where the German army was and where their recent victories were. And they'd have to cut newspaper clippings out and monitor the advance of the Reich. But then after half an hour, 45 minutes, they would get down to business and he would teach real math and science and literature. 
I mean, they all kind of admired him, honestly, as a teacher, despite the fact that he also, it was kind of, you know, surprising. Mm. You tell a story in the book of Franz Joseph Baldus, which I thought showed kind of a merciful side. I mean, he's strict. That's That seems very clear that he was strict. But just as he stood up for his colleague, he stands up for students who are struggling. One of the things I found when I was in this village was this wonderful archive, which hadn't been looked at in 80 years. Um, and it was covered in dust. Inside it were all these files about the schooling and including a lot of letters my grandfather had written to Nazi authorities and also report cards. And among them were these report cards for Baldus, who was a kid who clearly, what we would call a challenge kid or special education kid, he was he stayed, he could barely read and he stayed at the same level year after year after year. And the early report cards were kind of like, you know, Baldus needs to advance more. And then within a year or two, they became more and more tender and more and more kind of making allowances for him. And I found this touching partly because also in that same village, I'd been to visit a local historian who'd shown me files of kids from the neighboring village who had been actually transported and euthanized for being disabled or having problems of that sort. And there was a whole child euthanization campaign in Germany, killed thousands of children. And this was happening right next door. I mean, silently, it wasn't something that was broadcast around, but clearly there was a intolerance for any kind of disability under the Nazis. And my grandfather did not share that. Before we leave that story, talk about finding those report cards. I want to get in your head during the process of trying to piece together this puzzle of who your grandfather was. Because had you not found those files the story wouldn't be as fleshed out as it is in your book. Yeah, I kind of stumbled into this whole writing this book uh, really naively. I mean, I've been a New Yorker writer for 20 years, a journalist for 40 years, um, but I've never written history before. And I wrote a, a perfectly nice proposal for this book saying, hey, I've got this great story, my grandfather's a Nazi, and then he kind of turned against it, and I had a kind of a nice arc to it. But then when I started actually reporting the book, I suddenly realized he was... A small town school teacher was nothing about him in the historical record. Nobody had written about him. He had no diaries where he described what he did. He had very few letters until after the war. So how am I going to actually describe how he became a Nazi? How am I going to describe what went on between World War One? I? I mean, my parents, my mother didn't even know where he fought in the war, where he had lost his eye. And so for me, the process of writing this book was very much every chapter felt like an unknown. Every chapter felt like I was walking up to the edge of a chasm and not knowing if I'd find my way across it. And with the Nazi years in particular, 1930 to 1938, when he was in this village of Alfingen, that was hugely important. That was the moment when he went from being a former seminarian and school teacher to being a Nazi party member. How did that happen? And I wrote to this village, I knew he was there at the time, I knew the name of the village, but I wrote to the city hall and said, look, do you have any archives? And this man, Uwe Fröhlin, said, no, 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 we have no archives. And I talked to his assistant and he says, no, no, we have no archives. And then I said, well, what about other elderly people who might remember my grandfather there? And said, no, 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 we've asked around and uh, nobody remembers him. So I got a little desperate and I just flew to Germany and just visited a bunch of the surrounding villages and went to their archives thinking maybe they'll have some oblique reports about Alfing and in there, or at least I can draw analogies to what was going on there. And one day I'm in an archive and the archivist walks up to me and he's a very good archivist. He really had given me a bunch of reports and he'd known what he, that whole area very well. And he said, look, I know there are archives in Alfingen. I don't know what they're talking about. I said, well, they, Uwe Fröhlin tells me they're not. And he goes, well, Uwe Fröhlin, he's not an archivist. He's not even the mayor. He's just a chimney sweep that um, does... Is, Which wasn't is exactly mayor. true, right? <laughs> wasn't he kind of a mayoral figure? <laughs> well, he's what's called a Ortsvorsteher, which is kind of a village version of a mayor, but literally he would spend maybe five or six hours a week 
in the town hall. And his main job, his full-time job was as the chimney sweep of the, of the village. Wonderful guy, beloved, um, not interested in history. Uh, he told me, I don't, I don't really care about local history. He wasn't born there. So anyway, this archivist calls Uwe Fröhlin and I go and, and Uwe Fröhlin uh, takes me down to this basement that is, looks like a beautiful archive. It's all these leather-bound volumes in a row. Um, and I start looking through them and it's all just bills. It's 300 years of bills written in beautiful German longhand. So Burkhart Bilger is in this basement thinking that the archive was totally useless. But he asks his host if he may at least use the bathroom while he's there. And he goes, oh, God. So he walks me upstairs to get the key to the bathroom. And as we're going, I see this row of armoires. And I'm like, what about these? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe you want to look in those. You might want to look in those. So I open one of these giant wooden armoires. And, of course, it is the archive I've been looking for. It's just row after row of red cardboard folders full of documents, organized beautifully in the German style by, you know, police, education, religious matters. And that's where I found all these letters that my grandfather had written, uh, the report cards, everything else about the village life. This archive was in Alfingen, in the eastern Black Forest, where Carl Gunner began his career. You'll remember that it was when he lived in this region that Carl objected to the maltreatment of a colleague, which led to his transfer to teach in Alsace. Let's explore the goals the Nazi party had for Carl when they sent him to this occupied territory. At this point in his life, he's in his late 30s. It's 1938. He's a war veteran. He has one eye. He has has shrapnel in his body. I mean, he's not a natural soldier candidate, but they still call him up and send him to to training. Then they send him home and and they finally say, look, you obviously can't fight anymore, but um, we want you to go to Alsace um, along with thousands of other German teachers and re-educate the French students there and turn them into good little Germans. So there was a double movement. What happened was the Nazis come into Alsace, they occupy the area, they take all the French teachers and send them to Germany to be re-educated in how to be good Nazi teachers. And they take German teachers and send them to France to take over some of these classrooms. And my grandfather was sent to the southern tip of Alsace as the school principal and the kind of the head of three villages to lead the re-education of these French students. So that's his brief when he gets there. You find out later as you're interviewing people, he earns a reputation as a reasonable Nazi, if, if there can be such a thing. And I, I wonder if you could just give us a couple examples of why people thought that about him. When the villagers use that phrase or similar phrases, they realize that it's kind of an oxymoron. Like, how can you be both those things? But they said, look, here's a guy. He was famous for having his impeccable uniform, having polished boots and walking around, always looking exactly correct as the Nazi, leading the Hitler youth in the village, giving lectures in the town hall about the history of national socialism. And he did all the kind of performative things a Nazi would need to do. So he does all of that. But at the same time, you know, of course, there were things he was in charge of which were quite serious. Nazi police were enforcing Nazi rules, like you know, giving out fines for, for wearing berets, but also sending people to re-education camps and concentration camps for getting drunk and, and denouncing the German army at night, you know, um, for, for violating any kind of curfews or, or, or not going to work in the trenches to help build up the defenses. So all these things were happening. And at the same time, young Frenchmen were being drafted into the military. And if they didn't go, Alsatians were almost always sent to, to Russia. You mean into the military, that the occupying force. So they were drafted the into right. the German right. And, army. Okay, Right, which should have been illegal, by the way. You're not really allowed to, to but the Germans kind of said, look, Alsace has always been German. This is not, we're not being really an occupying force. We are just, re, re, you know, retrieving what was ours in the first place. So anyway, all these things were happening around him that, that he then was resistant to. So he would write letters to get the people brought back from the concentration camp. He was a number of people he had released. He would, you know, ign- you know turn a blind eye if they were using foreign radio broadcasts or if they were 
uh, illegally slaughtering animals. All those things were jailable offenses. And most importantly, if he knew that young men were being hidden in barns or were kind of in hiding, he would not give them away. And an important rule then in Alsace too is this thing of Sippenhaft, which meant that if somebody was found guilty, if a, son, if a boy was found guilty of evading the draft, the whole family was held to be responsible. Your whole family could be sent to a concentration camp in Germany. So there were a lot of deportations all through Alsace. And one of the things that villagers told me was, look, he was a reasonable Nazi. He made us all act according to the Nazis, but nobody was deported from this village. Nobody was ever executed. In all the important ways, he did not give in to those rules. Your mother was alive during this time when he was teaching in occupied France, right? Yes. And, and what did she know as a child of his Nazi affiliation? And then what did she tell you as you were growing up? before you knew all these stories from your research? So she was born in 1935, four years old when the war starts, 10 years old when it ends. She didn't know really anything about politics. She's too young for that. I think the biggest impact was simply that her father wasn't around. I mean, it was an unusual situation. You have to understand, their village is on one side of the Rhine, and half an hour away by bicycle, an hour away by bicycle, is Alsace. And all my grandfather would do is every... Sunday evening, he would leave home and he would ride his bicycle and he would go stay in a boarding house for the rest of the week. And on Friday afternoon after school, he would come back home across the Rhine and be back in Germany. So my mother was mostly aware of her father just being away from home all the time during the war. Burkhart Bilger's mother, Edeltraut, would go back to graduate school in history when Burkhart was in the fourth grade. She wrote her dissertation on the German occupation of France, and she would talk to her children about the Vichy government. But very little about my grandfather. And in fact, it was not something she ever investigated while she was working on her PhD. It was just, I think, too close to home. I learned that he was a Nazi party member, um, but that was about it. I wanted to know if Burkhardt got a sense as a child that his mother, Edeltraut, was hiding something. Was her father Karl's story verboten? I think so. It's interesting because my mother is, she's very transparent, you know, and very, very thoughtful. And in our family, I always thought of her as kind of the truth teller. You know, she was the person who wasn't afraid to say something tough or to kind of give give the goods. So she would say, yes, he was a Nazi party member, but I don't know what he did. Or, you know, she didn't wave it away, but she was just very vague about it. And the truth is, I don't think she knew. And I think she kind of didn't want to know. She had one experience when she was eight years old of going to that village and spending the day with him in the French school, but that was it. And I think she, she worried you know, she knew that what happened in Alsace, she knew that the only death camp in France was an hour or two away from the village where my grandfather was. She knew that, you know, the forced sterilizations and euthanizations and all the awful things that Nazis did were, happened in Alsace. She knew all that. And I think she didn't want to know that he had been connected to that. So I think there's some denial there. And then in 1983, this thing happens, which was really kind of was the beginning for me of wanting to write this book. Burkhart Bilger mentioned at the outset that both his great-grandmother and his mother had metaphysical experiences. In 1983, something happened to his mother, Adel Trout Bilger. It was in the most remarkable way that she found out that her father, Carl Gunner, was considered a hero by some of the French people living under Nazi occupation. In just a moment, we'll hear about the unusual way she discovered this. I'm Tenery Taylor, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. My little sister and my father and my mother went to Europe. My dad was a physicist, and he was giving a paper on white noise at a physics conference in Paris. And so they all flew together to Paris. And then they were driving from Paris down to southwestern Germany to see my relatives. And as they're driving, they pass this sign that says Bautenheim, which is the village where my grandfather was a Nazi party chief in the occupation. And my mother kind of sits up in her chair and says, hey, could you pull over? I want to visit this village. He goes, oh, we don't have time. We're about almost home. 
He says, no, I want to see this. So they drive into the village. Adel Trout Bilger would later tell Burkhart that she felt her father urging her along in this quest of sorts. And she knew, because she had been there when she was eight, she knew that the schoolhouse was the grandest building in town, was now the town hall. So she gets him to park nearby, and she says she felt a voice saying, now you have to go to the school. And she walks into the schoolhouse, and she kind of walks around. And she thinks to herself, there's nothing for me here. It's just bad memories. What, why am I here? I mean, the place had been kind of transformed and remodeled, so it didn't even spark that much memory in her. So she's leaving. She's going back to the car to see my father when she sees an old man with a little wagon and two kids in it. And there was that voice again that said, Now you have to walk across this courtyard. Now you have to talk to this man. You need to ask him. And she says to herself, Wow, this guy, he looks like he's about the age my father would be if he were still alive. So she rushes across the courtyard to him. She says, Excuse me. My father, Carl Gunnar, was here during the war. Would you happen to have known him? And the old man just is dumbstruck and doesn't say anything for a moment. And then says, know him? You know, I saved his life. And it turns out this man's name is George Chil. He was the head of the French resistance in that village. And he and my grandfather had kind of worked together doing some of the things I mentioned earlier, you know, helping to get people out of concentration camps, out of re-education camps, getting people excused for some of the mistakes they made. And in 1944, when the French Liberation Army came in and liberated the village, they gathered up all the Nazi leaders and the local collaborators and bound them to a tree. And we're going to shoot my grandfather, especially, I think, because he, he was the head party chief. And George Chill walked up and said, no, not this guy. He's been working with me. You know, you can send him to prison camp if you want and do your investigation, but he's not somebody you should kill. And so he saved his life. Everything that the family had feared about Carl's past from this point forward becomes tempered by the good works, some small, some bold, that Carl had done in the occupied village of Bartenheim in Alsace. But something more happened there as well, to the faith of Carl Gunner's daughter, Edeltraut Bilger. My mother is a very circumspect, very shy person. It's not something she would have naturally done. I mean, you're in this kind of quiet closed-off village, it's not the most obvious thing to kind of accost an old man and say, hey, did you know my father 40 years ago? But she said she had this voice in her head. And, you know, my mother was very religious growing up, and she was very religious when I was a young boy. My brother and sister went to Catholic school, and and we were churchgoers for a long time. So that was a big part of her life. I mean, she kind of lost her faith in the 70s, I think partly because to be quite frank, that the priests in Oklahoma in our town were quite lame. They were not um, not good minutes, didn't give good sermons. Uh, it was something she'd kind of lost. But I feel like like that experience of that happening in Azaz kind of restored some of her faith. It was something it meant a lot to her, and it kind of tapped into a, a religious-slash-mystical streak that she'd had in her whole life before that. Your grandfather, you described the commute by bicycle across the Rhine, and uh, it's the end of the war. The Germans are losing. He can kind of read the tea leaves. Why did he keep going back? Couldn't he have just said, you know what? <laughs> it's getting dangerous for me over there. I'm going to stay put. No, I, that to me is, it's not so much a mystery. It's one of those, I find it both admirable and and deeply wrong-headed, and I think that's typical of my grandfather. I mean, on the one hand, it wasn't just tea leaves. He knew that this was dangerous. He knew that he might get shot. At that point, he had been warned by George Chill. He knew that the French army was coming down and had occupied the village, but he told my grandmother that. I can't leave these people in the lurch. And that's an interesting statement, right? I mean, it could mean that he was afraid that 
Some of the other collaborators would do bad things to the villagers before the Nazi came. I mean, there's lots of ways to rationalize or try to understand what that statement means. I think, to me, it's a kind of a false sense of of responsibility. Like, you know, if anything, the villagers were thrilled. They were overjoyed at being liberated. You know, why would he feel like he needed to protect them in that situation? But I think there may have been things going on. Maybe there was dangers of other party members or local collaborators taking advantage of the situation right before the soldiers came. And he wanted to avoid that. Again, like I said, I could explain it a million ways. But one way or another, he went back across the river threw his gun in the, in the Rhine and allowed himself to be captured at the most dangerous moment. And what was his stay in prison like? Because he was sent to prison after George Schell intervened, right? Yeah, he spent a year in prisoner of war camps. Um, I actually found, through the Red Cross, I found the names and locations of the camps. And they're still there, which is crazy. The barracks are still there in both cases. The first place he went was this gorgeous old Louis Fourteenth era salt works. And they were kind of corralled there and kept there for a couple of weeks. But then they went to a place called Toll and... And dysentery, starvation, hard labor. I mean, he lost, I think he went down to below 100 pounds before he returned. And, you know, tens of thousands of German soldiers died in those kind of conditions. I think it was really brutal. I mean, he talked to my mom about how he would trade, you know, you got a ration of cigarettes and he would always trade his cigarettes to the other prisoners for bread because for them, you know, cigarettes were better at quelling your appetite than a piece of bread was. So they would do that. I mean, one of the things... I know my mother inherited was was this habit of chewing unbelievably slowly. You have a tiny piece of bread, you eat it for as long as you possibly can to just get any kind of sustenance, any kind of hunger quelling out of it. So he was very disciplined in that way. And I think that kind of carried him through a year of, of that deprivation. And he's finally released, exonerated, and you'd think he could go back to his life, but then he ends up in prison again. Yeah. And this and this is an important story because this is when the French villagers come t- to his rescue in a really beautiful way. Yeah, that to me was the most was the most telling thing because it's possible and with all of this history there's always another side to it, another version of the story, right? Even with George Chill, I mean beloved guy, everybody in the village after the war made reference to him as a witness and so forth. But, you know, you can imagine maybe it was some self-interest in him defending my grandfather. But in this case, what happens is my grandfather gets arrested. He's been accused by one man, Obrecht, in the village of having given an order that led a a farmer to be beaten to death, a farmer who'd refused to go work on the trenches. And so my grandfather is arrested, put in solitary confinement for a year and a half, and this is a period of time in France called the Epuration, the purification, the savage purification, where 300,000 French collaborators are under trial for collaborating. You know, 9,000 summary executions. Women who had relationships with Nazi soldiers, their heads are shaved, swastikas written on their foreheads, and they're paraded through the street. The women who've had babies are paraded through with their babies in their arms, shaved with signs that say Nazi babies. You know, it's just a horrific period of revenge and bitter anger in the French people. And here's my grandfather, a Nazi, in prison for causing the death of a local. It feels like a fait accompli, like this. there's no way to get out from under this. My grandmother gets in touch with the daughter of the former mayor of the village, who says she's heard that my grandfather's in prison. And she says, I can talk to the local villages for you if you want. And so the two of them and the landlady of the apartment house where my grandfather is, three of them actually work and talk to local villagers. And in the end, 17 villagers write testimonials to the French military government. And I have these pieces of paper in my hand. My mother collected them. And they're just for me, very moving. You know, they're written on little pieces of paper. They're written in these scrawled hands. They're people who had probably a fifth grade education in many cases. They all start by saying, I'm a French patriot. I believe in France. And this guy was a Nazi, but he saved my son. But he got me out of prison. But, you know, and they kind of list all these things he did in the village. And for me, the courage of that, because here they are in these villages that are being torn apart 
with accusations and counter accusations of collaboration. And they're writing to the French military government and saying, hey, by the way, this Nazi is a good guy. You should release him. The guts it took to do that. I just find that amazing. And that was, to me, the one most convincing piece of evidence in all my research. In 2005, Adel Trout-Bilger got possession of those testimonials. And when she got the letters and she showed them to me, and I remember that was the point, the whole story. I knew the George Chill story. I knew that he had been you know, saved by the head of the local resistance. I knew that that had complicated the thing. Like my mother suddenly thought, well, maybe he wasn't such a bad guy during the war. And then these letters came and that was like, oh my God, this is interesting. Here's a man who was a committed Nazi who turned against his own regime. So that's what sent me on the path to write this book. Of course, there was no guarantee that there wouldn't be other information that would come out in the midst of that. When I started it, I had a pretty convincing piece of evidence, but I still feared that I would find other things along the way. So that was the beginning. Take me back to the moment of getting the letters. How did that kind of change your family story? Was there some kind of relief? Did it feel like redemption? Did it feel like, oh, I don't have to be afraid to know anymore? You have to understand, on the one hand, we were proud to be German. We spoke German at home, grew up in Oklahoma. We loved German traditions. We had German traditions, and we were very proud of it. On the other hand, it was something you didn't talk about lightly, you know, and certainly the mention of my grandfather was Nazi is not something I did. And even with my parents, again, both my parents were born in 1935, little kids during the war. You know, I would talk to people about being German and they'd say, oh, really? Uh, how many generations back? And I say, first generation immigrants. And they say, well, well, when were your parents born? And clearly in their minds, they were counting back. Well, OK, 1935. So they would have been four years, you know, because there was this always this implication of if you were in Germany, you were guilty unless you were very, very young. I think in this country from umpteen war movies and everything else, we've always had a very, very black and white idea about the war and what, what it meant to be German. You, like, either a, you were a Nazi or you were a Schindler, and there was no in-between. Otherwise, you're in some way complicit, which, you know, in many cases is true. I mean, like people like my grandfather, they went along with this regime, which did horrific things. And I don't in any way think what he did later excuses him for that early joining and forwarding of Hitler's policies. But at the same time, for my family to suddenly realize it was more complicated than that, there's a whole story there, that this man could have been, on the one hand, kind of blind and complicit, and on the other hand, courageous and principled. And I think of myself in those situations, I don't think I would have joined the Nazi party. I'm not that type. I'm not a joiner. I'm not an ideological person. But would I have had the courage to do what he did in, during the war? I mean, it took a certain kind of absolute conviction and rigidity in a way to say, no, I will do the right thing even if it puts me at risk of death. Would I have been able to do that? I'm not sure. I don't know if there are a lot of people who would have done that. So it suddenly it complicated in a way that I found comforting, but also just deeply interesting. It made me think differently about the German people. It made me think about myself and about Americans in this era. What are we doing and when are we not raising our voices when we should? You mean right now? It made you think about our country right now? Right now, yeah. yeah. So you said the letters, getting the letters, reading the letters was kind of the impetus for you to say, oh, okay, I'm going to write, there's a book here. I'm going to write this book. Did you ever have any sense like your mom did of kind of being directed or pushed or inspired to find those armoires. Your mother had always been mystical. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a sense that there was a reason you should be writing this book bigger than yourself? You know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm not a mystical person. <laughs> I don't attribute those impulses to the kind of outward influences. But the truth is that in retrospect, I'm amazed at how whenever I needed something, it came to me. And there was a series of serendipitous discoveries along the way of writing this book that that came just when I needed them. So I don't know. I mean, I, certainly at the time, I didn't think to myself, I didn't thank God for intervening or for giving me a gift. But at the same time, I'm highly aware of the wonder of those moments um, and thankful for them. Could you describe one of them for us? In the archives in Colmar, which is a town in Alsace that has a lot of the historical archives. And I was there with my daughter, Ruby, who was in college at the time. And she and I were 
looking for documents. We had our iPhones out and we were photographing documents. And as often happens in archives, you spend hours and hours and hours. You get lots of interesting stuff, but nothing really apropos, nothing really directly about the thing you're trying to find. And so we pack up about four o'clock in the afternoon and we're about to leave. We hand back the last box of documents and the archivist says, oh, but you've got another box to look at. And we're like, no, we don't. We've looked at all the boxes we ordered. And she says, well, no, but how so-and-so thought you might want to see this box. And I said, sure. So she pulls out this box and gives it to us. And it ends up being a box of classified documents. Really shouldn't have been there. It should have been somewhere under lock and key. It's a full file of of letters from the mayor's office of the village where my grandfather was was the Nazi party chief. It's kind of like the same stuff I found in Aurfingen. It's letters my grandfather wrote to the local Nazi authorities, the mayor wrote the Nazi local authorities, that the Nazis wrote back. And reading those letters suddenly gave me this unbelievable, like, you are there, eyewitness image of what happened in that village. It really was like having a hidden camera because you saw the mayor playing both sides, the mayor writing letters to the Nazis saying, you know, we need more Hitler youth in this village and can you send us some more swastika flags to put up? And on the other hand, playing against them and like trying to help the villagers hide just like my grandfather did. You saw both and my grandfather doing the same thing. And without that box, I could never have gotten under the skin of that village and really described what happened, you know? And it came to me, it was just a gift, came out out of the blue sky. Adel Trout Bilger passed away in March of 2023, but before her death, Burkhardt's research highlighted a change in her feelings about her own past. I think she had gotten to the point where she just wanted to know. You know, she was older. Some of her misgivings had fallen away, and she was just, she just, she didn't care anymore. She wanted to know what happened. And I have to say one thing that was most moving to me Early on in the research, she was fully there and I talked to her every day and she was a huge part of this book. But then she started to get dementia and in the last six years of her life, um, lost more and more of her memories. So by this January, when the first advanced reader copies had come out, she could only say a word or two. She couldn't say a full sentence. She was sleeping 20 hours a day. But my sisters would go read to her in the hospice and they would read to her you know, fairy tales and stuff of that kind. And she would react sometimes. Like if a princess fell asleep, she might cry. You know, there was little signs that she was understanding what was written. And so when my book came out, I sent the advanced reader's copy to my sister Eva and she's reading it out loud to my mother. And my mother would just be sleeping. Eva was just reading. And at one point early in the book, I describe my mother and I say, how small she was and how red hair and these bottle thick glasses. And I say, you would not have thought to look at her that she was so strong. And when my sister read that, my mother in her bed lifted her fist up in the air to show that she was. (laughs) And to understand that sentence, she had to understand all the sentences before it to understand the context, to know it was about her. So clearly she was still getting the story told to her, which just meant all the world to me. Burkhart Bilger has been a staff writer for The New Yorker for 20 years. He's the author of Fatherland, a memoir of war, conscience, and family secrets. I'm Tenery Taylor. I produced this episode with help from Marcus Smith, Brian Barba, Mamie Teeples, and Colson Darrington. Sound designed by Mitchell Towsley and Dallin Jepson. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.